Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about public image. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Ramsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Uh, start start with some news uh first of all i'd like to remind everyone that we are on patreon now so if you'd like to uh support the show and help us make more content then please consider uh becoming one of our subscribers one of our patrons because yeah because you want to hear more right because we're amazing anyway on to proper news um mary lou uh florian's book heritage eaters is now available online for free because it's no longer in print and, oh, wow. uh, the, yeah, so we'll, we'll put a link on that in, uh, to that in the show notes. Um, it, she, she does, uh, say, uh, she said on the disc list uh, that, uh, it might be a bit dated. However, it is still accurate, as it were. These things are still eating our collections. So, uh, yeah, that's a nice new free resource. I'll be downloading that later. <laughs> yes, quite. Um, Another piece of news is that the conservation studio has opened at Knoll. That's the National Trust Conservation Studio. And it'll house uh, six conservators doing amazing things for a long time to come, I hope. <laughs> made that sound like <laughs> there's a new tiger pen at the zoo. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think there's a certain level of that because I did see nice photos of, you know, that kind of glass wall where you can look in on Ooh. them. Um, so it is slightly Feeding like trust. that. <laughs> I'm so sorry if you're listening and you're working at Noel. <laughs> you're going to have a lovely time, I'm sure. It's, it's going to be a great. beautiful lab. It's going to be great. <laughs> We're planning an episode on social media uh, and conservators, and uh, we've got a survey out. You may have already seen us tweet about it, and we put links on Facebook, but here we are shouting about it again. We have a survey out. We'd love to know how conservators use social media. Please, please, please take the survey. You've got until uh, the uh, 21st of May to answer it uh, because that's when we were recording the episode and we're going to talk about the results. So please, please, please uh, take our survey. Uh, tell your tell your conservative friends to take the survey. Do it. Do it now. Everyone loves a good survey. I love a good survey. Geek. I am. <laughs> such a turtle geek. Anyway, please, please take the survey. And we'll pop the link in the show notes. And uh, check out our Twitter account or our Facebook page, and you will also find find the link to it. Uh, please go and do it. Thank you. So anyway, um, that's uh, probably all the news that I had. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the big conservation story in the news uh, over the last couple of weeks has been the attack on the painting at the National Gallery in mm. London. Uh, so for anyone who isn't aware of that, um, a painting by Gainsborough, uh, the 18th century artist uh, called Mr. and Mrs. William Hallett was attacked with a sharp, what, what's described as a sharp object. Um, and I've seen variously described as a drill bit or a screwdriver. Um, but yeah, I guess I that doesn't heard matter. Yeah? Mm. Uh, but um, the painting uh, had two quite large slashes, um, about a metre by half a metre in a sort of X shape, and was obviously immediately taken 
display. Um, but it's been in the news again last week because it's actually been conserved and returned to display remarkably quickly. Ten days. Um, within a couple of weeks. Yeah, 10 days. Marvellous. Um, Absolutely And fantastic. the thing that really struck me as somebody who's uh, made a bit of a hobby out of looking at how conservation is reported in the media um, was how well this story's been uh, reported this time. So um, Larry Keith, who's the um, head of conservation at the National Gallery, has actually been directly quoted um, in several of the reports about the restoration of the painting, which is uh, quite a new thing. In my experience, they tend to talk to the curators about how the conservation's gone, which is obviously uh, not the most direct way of finding out about these things. Um, so to actually talk to the conservators directly and have the conservators explain themselves uh, what's been involved in that is, um, I think, a really kind of promising development and a kind of indication that conservation's maybe getting a bit more into the public eye and um, people want to hear from us. Yeah. Oh, that's marvellous. And ties in oddly well with the episode. <laughs> because, <laughs> of course, does. today we're talking <laughs> about public image and how we're perceived and how we portray ourselves and, uh, yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's a good news story to lead with. Christina, this is kind of your uh, one of your areas of expertise in a way. Uh, this is what my PhD was about. See, <laughs> see, wow. so you've done a so, bit about it then. <laughs> uh, I have, uh, I have subsequently shelved the PhD research, so um, I'm not doing anything That's about okay. it. We're, we're not going to press you into taking up a PhD on the show. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> On the other hand, if anyone would like to pay my tuition fees, I'd happily go back to it. <laughs> uh, uh, excellent. Yeah. Subtle hint there, people. <laughs> I mean, what, I, what, what, what got you started in being interested in this, Christina? I got interested in this, I think, because it's kind of a generational thing in that I started working in conservation in 2005, I think, which was around the time when there was a lot more interest in, uh, you know, getting conservation out there, talking to the public, doing outreach and engagement and so on. And so in my first few jobs, there was quite a bit of that, actually. And um, it was kind of expected that anyone working in conservation then would be prepared to go out there and do gallery talks, talk to visitors, do lab tours, that kind of thing, mm. uh, which maybe wouldn't have been the case if I'd started working in conservation 10 or 20 years earlier. So partly it was that um, it was the environment at the time. It was something people started getting very interested in more generally in the profession. And I guess I started looking into it more and looking at how effectively we were communicating. So that was one of the things that I was looking at in my uh, abandoned PhD research um, was how the, the kind of messages that conservators are trying to get across and how well those messages are being received. Um, and also looking at how conservation is reflected back to us um, in popular culture. So uh, I was looking at newspaper stories about conservation for example what kind of language is being used what kind of stories do uh, does the media tend to focus on what kind of um how accurate are these stories and so kind of looking at both sides of it really what are conservators trying to say to the public and also are the public listening and what's kind of getting reported at that and so on mm. 
Excellent. That actually uh, brings something to mind in that I've saved, I've saved some articles or people send me articles, which is very sweet when they involve conservation and conservators. Uh, so mm-hmm. s- sometimes friends who have nothing to do with the museum world will send me a newspaper snippet of some description or torn out pages from a magazine and go, look what I found. It's about stuff that you do. And I'm like, <laughs> I know it's fantastic. Um, it's just, I love that. It's very sweet. Um, and I think it, I was going to say I think every now and then a, a story kind of blows up and becomes really big. That's a conservation story, and it's kind of our opportunity to make a point about conservation. And I guess there isn't a conservator out there who didn't have uh, the Fitzwilliam vases story sent to them. Yeah, who didn't quite. Have uh, the um, painting in the church in Spain that was oh, restored. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that really yeah, made the, headlines. The, yeah. You know, I mean, there are these kind of really high-profile stories that mm. emerge every now and then, and that that you know, where everyone suddenly becomes aware that uh, conservation is a thing, mm. and people express all kinds of opinions about it. Not necessarily um, particularly informed opinions, but it's it's kind of out there, and it's our opportunity, um, I guess, to to engage with that mm. um, and to sort of put our side of the conversation forward. So I, I, I do this sad thing where I trawl through the BBC and the Guardian and like news sites every day, every morning. That's kind of my morning ritual for stories about heritage, archaeology, uh, conservation, museums. And I tweet about them because it's a thing I do. And I'm pleasantly surprised that there are more and more stories about uh, conservation. It's not necessarily involving conservators, though, which is the slight annoying annoying thing about it but i love that there are so many stories about oh this thing that they found and it was in pieces and now it's not and now it's going on display and it's fantastic (laughs) someone's put a hundred hours into this and it's amazing and i love that that's great i see more and more of those with an increasing frequency that's really really pleasing so when when i started doing this you know years ago uh, there was a lot less uh, of that going on and and now i you know easily see it's maybe maybe once a week sometimes more than that depending on what's going on and how generous funding has been etc but it's it's a really pleasing thing to see it crop up more even though it's tends to be from the point of view of curatorial uh, people where it's like oh we're putting this thing on display it was conserved by the way uh you know in in the slight (laughs) in in the slight way of oh yeah it's yeah someone had to work really hard on this by the way but for hours and hours yeah but i'd like that i see more of these stories that's kind of the bit that i just wanted to get at that i'm really pleased that it's it's happening we're um our our work is being featured more even if we're not and that might be something to work towards changing i think i think i agree with you there are more stories there um i mean not to on your parade but i think that when I was looking at news stories that made it in about stories that made it into the media about conservation, I found that there were sort of you know maybe three narratives that tended to get that, and one of them is the you know object in terrible condition. Here's a before photo. Gasp! <gasps> Look at how awful it looks. Um, and um, then conservators put in hours and hours of painstaking. The word painstaking is usually used. <laughs> yes. Effort. 
um, and then look, it looks completely different. Here it is, and that's a very kind of satisfying narrative arc, if you like. Mm. Um, but you the, don't see the stories you know, you about get, there's, how there's you clean something. Kind of payoff for, that. Yeah, you um, don't see the stories about how you clean something twenty hours and it looks like exactly the same, but it's better. Or yeah, the, the, absolutely, yeah. or, or or you know, I mean, I've I've yet to see a story in the national press about IPM, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Look at all the damage that didn't happen because of or, me doing or, this know, for eight uh, years. <laughs> um, and I think um, another story that tends to make it into the papers from time to time is uh, arrogant conservators wreck things. So this is um, usually uh, about fine art, um, mm. quite often about um, easel paintings. Removing discoloured varnish is often a very contentious topic for a lot of people. Um, and... So every and there is in fact an organisation uh, that exists solely to keep an eye on conservators and get outraged whenever they do conservation. Um, and um, that's also quite a popular story, and that's quite a frustrating one because often the treatment that's led uh, to the, the the often the reasoning behind the treatment has been very carefully thought out. Um, conservators don't just usually tinker with things for the sake of it or just because they can um, there, there will usually be some sort of positive conservation benefit mm. there but it often gets portrayed as you know conservators are ruining artworks by over restoring them by you know so but, uh, that that's that's the other story i, that I, I mean that that's probably. interesting because i guess it does bring ethics into the public eye in a way although i mean not necessarily in a way that's super positive and happy for conservators yeah, I mean, ethics are kind of like the iceberg of conservation in public, mm. if you like, in that every now and then they are seen explicitly in a story, um, particularly if somebody's talking to a conservator directly um, about a project or about an intervention, then the conservators themselves will often mention the ethical background to the treatment and why they've chosen to do one thing and not another. But obviously ethics are... Uh, ethics underpin all of our conservation practice but they're very rarely seen in the final results or seen by people who see the final yeah, results quite. and so that's that's one of the things that's kind of invisible in public if you like and i think that's where a lot of misunderstandings occur mm, agreed yeah that's why i suppose it's difficult on both sides isn't it because you've either got people are outraged because something has been over restored and people are sort of scathing because oh look at the state of this yeah no oh, this looks dreadful and somebody says that they've spent 10 hours doing it etc mm-hmm. etc et and it's sort of where does the judgment come in of well we couldn't do this because ethics and we did this because ethics mm. I, I mean in in some sense you can't win i i <laughs> worked on a gallery project and an antiquities gallery um and we were pretty minimal i would say in how far we restored things although we did a lot of supportive conservation work um and we were very fortunate to have a number of objects that just were in very good condition even though they were two thousand two and a half thousand years old and one of the first comments we had in the visitors book was along the lines of nice gallery shame there are so many modern fakes on display (laughs) and that was just from someone who couldn't believe that these were real objects and i'm not quite sure whether they thought they were replicas or whether they thought they were objects that we're massively over restored that's that's uh not an uncommon piece of feedback actually um, really Who no no that? no but right so um 
it, I, I worked in a similar setting for a while and I spent a lot of time in the exhibition space, uh, not as front of house staff or anything, but more because I, I did a lot of the uh, tour aspects and that sort of thing or, or followed along as uh, someone extra to help and support or if there were indeed any conservation questions. But often people did not believe that what they were seeing were, were the real thing. Um, this was especially common for Egyptian objects where the colors are still very vivid and it's it's very pretty to look at and people immediately kind of go, it's not old, is it, though? <laughs> I, um, bloody well is. Uh, <laughs> it's really old. <laughs> but, th- but there's this... Um, aspect of maybe they expect an old object to not look as um, intensely bright and colorful for example yeah i suppose people have their preconceptions of the kind of um aging or damage with yeah, deterioration what, what we'd it say. Looks like. yeah what happens when things are old and i suppose fading general yeah. color change it gets dusty. But then at the same time, you probably it's get the opposite the complaint list. if you put a lot of really faded objects on display because then they go, I don't look spit knacker, doesn't it? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, at the same time, you, you're back to, you, you're back to square one where you, you, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. But it, it's, it's not an uncommon piece of feedback that people might not actually believe that what they're seeing is real because it looks too nice. And that might even be without conservation interference because often Egyptian objects can look marvelous even even without us particularly doing anything to it you know so um actually back on the topic of articles and how we how we are portrayed uh, in the media i i've got two examples of articles with me one is from the historic scotland uh magazine uh type thing that goes out to all the membership and that's that's one that one of my friends uh sent me at some point uh this one's actually from 2014 so it's not the freshest thing but it's uh it's an article where someone goes and has a bit of a go at being a conservator and that that does not that that's not what it sounds like i mean he goes and visits conservators and they invite him to partake in some of the things that we do just to show the range of different things that conservators do and mm-hmm. the different skill sets needed and i thought it's actually a really nice and interesting article it's obviously written uh aimed at general public but with an or who already have an interest in heritage to some degree because they're members of Historic Scotland. Um, so it's, it's general public, but, you know, with, with this kind of safe reassurance that you are, you already care about this. So you're clearly going to be interested in this. Um, mm. but it's, it's written in a very lovely way and I like that it's engaging and, uh, actually really respectful, well written piece about, the weird challenges that we face and like the, the stuff that we have to think about before we actually, you know, start steam cleaning something, for example, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it's very good at kind of this kind of a soft approach thing of, and before we did any of this, uh, we had to consider this. And obviously I was supervised the entire time. So it's not like I was being a cowboy conservator or anything. Um, so it, I, it's, it's a really nice piece. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll link to it in the uh, show notes. And another one I have in front of me is from 2013. It's from the Museums Journal. And it was probably the last time I saw conservators properly actually in the Museums Journal, uh, in that it was just called The Conservators. And it was various interviews with conservators uh, from all over the UK, uh, doing different aspects of their work. So, you know, we had remedial and preventive and uh, lecturers and, and all sorts, really. And it's, again, it's, it's a really nice piece, but I, I kind of wish I saw them more frequently in that 
you know, it's it's been a while now. Maybe we could do something on something we do again. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Museums Association. Hi. Please. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously that this type of article is geared towards fellow professionals uh, who also work within the museum or heritage sector. So it has a completely different feel to it in that it's very, this is what we do and this is why you should respect us, which is good. We do need that kind of article because, uh, yeah, I think it's just good to be seen as a profession sometimes and just go, hey, here we are, by the way. This is what we do. These are the things that we think about and this is how we can help you. This is why you need us. So um, talking about... Um, how we're perceived by fellow professionals mm. takes us on quite neatly, I think, to the paper that was published in the latest issue of JIC, the Journal of the Institute of Conservation, uh, which landed on my doormat last month, I think, and had an article by Cordelia Rogerson and Paul Garside mm. at the British Library, um, which talked about how they had found that an unexpected benefit of carrying out risk assessments, which they were doing uh, to decide whether a particular object should go on loan and so on, um, an unexpected benefit of that was actually that it they found it raised the profile of conservation and the whole conservation department within the library as a whole. And um, I think that that's a really kind of positive article because often I think conservators feel like we're perceived in our institutions as the people who are always really negative and who are there to say no and frustrate other people's really Mm. exciting plans. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, um, uh, and this article actually really kind of drew out some things that conservators started to be recognized for. So people started to recognize that actually conservators as a whole were really good at boiling down complex information into um, a sort of simple easy to understand way uh, which I think we are and also that conservators are generally very good at project management and that we you know we've got this kind of set of skills that's not always appreciated outside the conservation departments and outside our in kind of immediate areas of working mm. uh, but things that can be applied directly outside conservation work as well um, so I thought that was a kind of positive thing because um I mean, one of the really big issues, actually, is that conservators tend to be very underrepresented in senior management in institutions. So very few conservators will go on um, to be heads of uh, institutions, heads of museums, heads of whatever. It seems that there's a kind of glass ceiling here. And I think that's partly because conservators are perceived to have this very kind of specific skill set. And uh, that, the other things that we bring aren't necessarily true. recognized. Uh, that's probably true. Although I would also, um, I want to say it's called the Peter principle, where, um, that's, it's kind of a business speak thing where, um, you don't want to end up in a situation where someone gets promoted and promoted until they can't do their job, for example. So it's. Yeah, uh, I think it's just you get promoted to the, to your level of incompetence, doesn't yes, it? Yes, yes, exactly. And, um, and that's, that's, that's my slight worry because I, I love that there's this thing that now that ICON does, which is it's trying to encourage people who are at retirement age as conservators to go into more management, uh, positions so that uh, they can become leaders. And I think. Mm-hmm. That is a lovely thought, but I do hope that you, the thought with it is to give them actual training and only enable the people who are actually leadership material because not everyone is. You can't automatically think that 
everyone who has been a brilliant conservator for 40 or 50 years will also automatically be an amazing manager because they might be with a lot of training and guidance, but not everyone is. And no. uh, that's uh, possibly one of my worries where it's like, let's not automatically think that that's A, what everyone wants and B, that everyone is able to. Um, sure. But I, I would say at the moment that um, leadership positions in these institutions tend to be taken by people who've come up through the curatorial oh, very side much so. and they're not automatically no, managers. No, God, no. <laughs> Not at all in my experience. So I suppose what I'm saying is that actually we need to be talking to our peers as well, not just talking to the public about what conservators do, but yes. kind of making people more aware within institutions and and colleagues and so on. Um, so mm. that yeah, there, there's quite a bit of profile raising to be done there Agreed. as well. Yeah, I wonder if the white coat and gloves thing is alienating or endearing to people. Do people like oh. to see us as we're see this is the this is interesting scientists, I'm, or do they I'm, want us to be kind of relaxed and this chill? Is <laughs> so one thing that I had to do when I started my job was I had to do some promotional photo shoots. <laughs> wow, which, um, is about as embarrassing as you might imagine they are. Um, so I had to pose uh, in the galleries. Um, either in what I would call civilian clothing or um, we also tried with apron because some Ooh. people quite like mm -hmm. apron look and also with lab coat and obviously gloves with all of these, right? Um, with and without gloves, with and without gloves, with and without gloves. Um, there was a lot of changing. Um, but it's it's really interesting that people do find the white coat a bit scary. It's a bit mm. scary. It's a bit frightening. You know, we, we, we kind of trialed this and a couple of people like which one do you prefer and white coat slightly off-putting although some people do say that yeah it does look professional though it looks like you do a job that nobody else can do and that means that people are more willing to pay you which is a really interesting um kind of comment to get yeah like, that's really you look expensive <laughs> do i great uh, <laughs> so many people will pay me ask jenny what were you doing in these photos um, actually, these were all kind of, uh, meet the conservator. This is the conservator. So actually, I was very much just kind of standing, looking friendly next to cases <laughs> and that sort of thing. So it wasn't so, me holding objects or examining objects. Sure. Okay. This, the this, this was just kind of a, a kind of profile picture, more like it. Is because I, um, as part of a presentation I did at the, uh, Icon PF13 conference, um, I did a, I, I showed the results of a Google image search for conservator. Oh, yes. Which I did at the time, um, just to kind of show people what kind of images come up um, if you search for conservator. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time, they were remarkably uniform, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> oh, tell um, me more. They were almost always women. Mm -hmm. um, they were usually uh, sitting at a workbench in a lab wearing a white uh, white coat, wearing gloves, like you said, mm -hmm. uh, doing something. And it was very striking to me at the time how often the conservators were showed with their backs to the camera. Mm. Um, and the real focus was on the object rather than on the person actually conserving the object. And while you've been talking, I've actually just done uh, a similar search. and. I would say this time we've got a couple of men, uh, which is a nice change. Mostly women still, but a couple yeah. of men. Mm -hmm. uh, usually people peering down microscopes um, or 
you know, under task lights or doing things. I've taken um, but <laughs> people are kind of seem to be more generally to the fore here. Mm. Um, and I wonder if this kind of perception is changing yeah, slowly as we start to kind of come out of the woodwork more and as more conservators are using social media to mm. talk about their work and show people what it's like working behind the scenes and the kind of things that people do and so on. So uh, I need to go back and kind of compare the <laughs> two lots of search oh, results. This, this is... But I think it would be a very interesting thing to do periodically every five oh, years. I, I agree. This also brings to mind something that um, someone brought to my attention, name dropping, Jane Henderson. Uh, she uh, actually mentioned your paper at one point and she said, there was an interesting thing that if you typed in the same thing but added Wales at the end, you would get very different results. Similarly, if you type right. in Scotland at the end, you would get very different demographic kind of slice, which mm -hmm. uh, I absolutely loved. I love that piece of information that it can be really different depending on the regional um, kind of area. It's great. So one of the things I, one of the difficulties I had with my PhD research because um, I was trying to look at how conservationists talked about uh, in the public sphere, if you like, in the mm. media, I was looking at news stories and so on, was actually finding a comprehensive corpus, um, so to speak, of all the news stories that there were about conservation. And it's actually a remarkably hard thing to do. Um, one of the things that we suffer from as a profession, I would say, is our lack of a distinctive, unique vocabulary. Mm. So even conservation itself is primarily used to talk about uh, conservation in the natural world. Oh, yes. Uh, the amount of times I've gotten cross with people who are mixing up con conservatists and conservationists. <laughs> Absolutely. And I do not frequently. work with pandas. Alas. <laughs> sure. Very frequently, um, you'll see an article that uh, refers to a museum conservator as a conservationist and so on. So for a start, the, the vocabulary that's used, the terminology is um, ambiguous, it's not very well defined and so on. Even within the profession, there are people who call themselves conservators, people who call themselves restorers, people who call themselves conservator restorers. You know, we we haven't yet kind of got this very distinctive, clear-cut vocabulary. Which I just means have to add something to, there. Yeah. The best yeah. thing I've I've heard uh, someone call themselves is uh, conservatrix. <laughs> What? <laughs> Which made me incredibly happy somehow because it was like, oh my god, female empowerment, constant. Yeah, sorry. Um, anyway, sorry. Continue. <laughs> well, no, I, I just mean like you know, everybody knows what a dentist is. Yes, for quite. example. <laughs> yeah. uh, everybody knows what medicine is, and I, I'm not choosing these professions by accident either because these are some of the ones that we tend to try and compare ourselves to mm. as a profession. Um, science. Likewise, um, you know, the, these professions where people, they tend to have a very clear public image, not necessarily always a very accurate one, but at least people know, broadly speaking, what doctors are, um, who they are, what they do, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I think that this is, this is one of the problems for us as a profession is that conservation is itself quite a vague term and is used in other ways. Even conservator is used in the United States, um, to mean a kind of legal guardian interesting as and, well and uh, really? <laughs> conser conservator in sweden uh can mean both conservator like we are and also a taxidermist so people oh. often if i go home people often go oh why would you work with dead animals and i'm like oh i do but not in the way you think i do 
Yeah, I mean, in some other languages as well, directly translated, it would mean something more akin to a curator. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is here. Um, you know, whether we <laughs> need a completely different term, whether we all need to be. Uh, I don't know. Um, but I, I think this is this is one of the barriers we face with our kind of public image. Mm, agreed. Now, maybe as a kind of a final piece, uh, we can have a really so, brief little talk about um, conservatives in fiction and pop culture. In that, just just to kind of let people know that actually we do feature in pop culture, which is pretty cool. And there's actually a really extensive list, although not complete, because we do have to keep adding to it when we find uh, when we find ourselves in fiction. Um, that's on Conservation Online, and I'll pop a link in the show notes to that. Uh, that includes books, uh, films, TV appearances, that sort of thing. Uh, it is. Uh, a list of where not necessarily conservatives as such, but also where conservation is mentioned or the techniques that we use in conservation get brought up uh, or where there's a recognition that restoration and conservation exist. Uh, but it's, it's a broad enough label that I, I quite, I quite enjoy it actually. Uh, it's, it's a good list. I've read a few of the books on the list and uh, yeah. There's also a really amusing series of blog entries on the AIC blog by Rebecca Rushfield. And uh, they are basically like little mini reviews of some of these books, for example, which is quite entertaining reading if anyone would like to have a, have a go. <laughs> I think possibly the first time I kind of really came to consider conservation as a profession was actually um, when I was about 17 or 18. And I read the Julian Barnes novel, Talking It Over for the first time and one of the characters in this novel uh Gillian is a paintings conservator in private practice and I I quite liked it because there's the usual sort of description of her work where you can see that the author's kind of taken the time to talk to a couple of conservators and find out what they do and then they kind of drop in a few mm -hmm. technical <laughs> yeah uh, you know, there, there's a bit about using saliva on cotton swabs to clean paintings and so on and you know that kind of thing so yeah um but i think the thing i liked about it was that her her private life in this novel is utterly chaotic uh, but her working life is shown as very sort of serene and civilized um, in direct <laughs> contrast um, and I'm, I'm just looking at a bit from the book um, and it says uh, I was sitting in front of my easel at about quarter to nine doing some preliminary tests on a little panel picture of a city church radio three in the background was churning out something by one of those barks who weren't bark and I thought yeah that's the kind of lifestyle I want you know sitting oh, in there wow. <laughs> sitting in my kind of attic studio at home with the nice skylights and lots of natural light and so on radio three playing some civilized classical music in the background and just kind of working away with nothing else to worry about and so on oh, that sounds lovely. Uh, it made kind of you know it, it it kind of really made me think about conservation as this very genteel um and slightly glamorous activity mm. um and and you get to sort of spend hours commuting with a priceless artwork in solitude and peace and calm and so on. <laughs> um, and then, of course, I kind of forgot about it, did other things and so on, and then trained as a conservator. Um, and it was actually a bit of a shock to find that my working <laughs> that, life... That is not life. <laughs> wasn't like that at all. And I spent quite a bit of time, you know, on my hands and knees crawling behind dusty showcases looking for lost pest traps and things like that. Um, oh, where did they put the silica gel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and there's us two but nodding I, along it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. But I'm sure that is. And I've I've again made a bit of a hobby of, of collecting um these representations in fiction because it's a particular interest of Oh marvellous. Do you have a whole bookshelf with them? Oh, I really want the I answer to be yes. I genuinely have a whole bookshelf oh, that's them. amazing yes. right now um i've got um i recently read fugitive pieces um mm-hmm. which does uh include a kind of uh waterlogged wood expert uh, is one of the characters and let's see what else i've got homicide and hardcover <laughs> yes um uh, which looks to be very good and i've got inkheart uh, they they're on my shelf right now, and those are all to be found on that list I just mentioned. And uh, uh-huh. I, I greatly look forward to reading them. <laughs> you know, when I have time to read, <laughs> we need some updates when you have. I yes. think um, one of the, one of the books I would just love to draw to people's attention more is um, called Masterpiece of Deception, which is by a novelist called Judy Lester. And if you haven't heard of Judy Lester, then that might be because it's actually a pseudonym for Leslie Carlyle, the paintings conservator. <laughs> um, and it is one of only two novels that I know of that have been written by conservators. But do write in and let us know if you oh, know of yeah. more. Please do. Um, the other is by Miriam Clavier, mm-hmm. um, who's, uh, as you probably know, uh, a conservator, um, specialised a lot in ethnographic material. And um, it's uh, set in a Museum of Anthropology in uh, Canada, so mm-hmm. <laughs> probably quite close to home. It's called Insinuendo, Murder in the Museum. And the one of the bits of blurb on the back says, an intrepid intern in a museum's conservation department discovers secrets beyond those of the artefacts, secrets and deceptions that point to murder. So, oh, wow. Uh, yes. Oh, that's desperately uh, want to write, it, write yet, a piece of fiction like this now. <laughs> do a review of it. So, uh, interestingly, I've actually been interviewed as part of book research for a piece of fiction, which is currently um, in its final edit stages, I've been told. But I don't have a title or any juicy gossip on it. I, I just want to add that. Actually, I, I've, I've been interviewed by an author um, who asked some really insightful and great questions about how I'd react if I had a a certain type of object where I found myself in a certain type of situation. Like, what, what would you do? What's the first thing that you do if, if this happens or if someone puts this object in front of you? What, what's the procedure? And, uh, it, that was a fantastic experience because I thought the questions were really insightful and great. And hopefully we can do an interview with that person in uh, due course as that book is released. Did you, do you have any idea what the book is about? Uh, I know nothing other than it will feature a conservator as a main as a main character. That is the the reason I'm asking is because so many of them are actually uh, kind of thrillers, crime fiction, detective mm. novels, and so on. And I think that is something that uh, where people are, are often very keen to put conservators in. Mm, it's fascinating, to, isn't it? Because yeah, it's, quite, it's a, a kind of a, a mystery very, aspect very of it. Common trope. Yeah. yeah. Well, a really common trope that you find is that, uh, you know, you find the, uh, that the heroine, usually heroine rather than hero, heroine's day job, um, is kind of analog of, um, her kind of nighttime activity. So she's kind of conservator by day and crime fighter by night. <laughs> and quite often it's, you, you get, um, the d- description of the process of cleaning a painting and uncovering what's underneath, discovering, um, some completely different underdrawing, discovering another painting entirely underneath. And that's kind of used as a parallel 
with the other side of the story, which is uncovering some nefarious activities that are mm, happening yes. elsewhere. The, the, the whole kind of conservation process um, becomes a kind of metaphor for the other bits of the story, which I think is often why people are kind of interested to feature conservators. That's that's one of the aspects of conservation work, or at least investigation, yeah. that people think is interesting mm. from that point of view. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, it's often not about conservation at all. It is about investigation authenticity that kind of thing yeah, yeah, rather quite, yeah i'm surprised that there aren't well maybe there are please let me know if you know any um aren't more sort of horror based things because we sometimes uncover horrible things well no because we're often in uh, um oh you mean we're in creepy uh... creepy dark stores where the <laughs> lights are automatic and they'll sometimes just go off for no reason and that oh you you've got to walk through three or four darkened rooms ah, before see. you get to what you so i think I've, this, this is where we need conservatives to write them because they've been in the creepy situation yes. and nobody else thinks that's hap- that's happening because other people think now clearly stores the lights are on all the time well, the, for example yeah, see <laughs> In my museum, in the basement, there is a huge well that is uncovered. Sorry, that is covered, but occasionally people have to drain off water into. So that they uncover it. Creepy. So what I d- why has nobody thought to do really creepy monster slash ghost based horror? Oh, I love it. So I I come across one story that oh, um, I think was the love story with vampires. <laughs> oh my oh, god. <laughs> conservators uh, and i can't remember what it's called um but and i haven't read it but um yeah i haven't come across any horror chloe that's an interesting one oh, i always want to do short films that's clear. i always want to do short films of the you know <laughs> you're writing something oh your paper is blown away down to this dark stairwell and you're all on your own because obviously no one has loan working policy anymore <laughs> um yeah uh, I'd like to do that. I think I'd like rather leave it to someone else, though. <laughs> so, uh, if anyone's listening and they're a filmmaker, <laughs> Chloe has some ideas for you. <laughs> I think the last time I saw a conservator in a film was Ghostbusters 2, so <laughs> we could do with a bit of updating. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, should we move on to a review? Christina, you've reviewed something for us. I'm reviewing The Public Face of Conservation, a collection of papers presented at the conference Playing to the Galleries and Engaging New Audiences, which was held in Williamsburg, Virginia in 2011. I actually reviewed this book for Icon News in 2014. You can find it in issue 52, page 23, if you're interested. But I thought it would be interesting to revisit the book for this podcast, especially as it ties in so well with the theme of this episode. In my first review... I described this book as the most comprehensive collection of papers on this subject to appear to date. This is still the case. In the four years since it was published, no other publication about conservation outreach comes close to matching the size and scope of this book. It contains 38 presentations from the Williamsburg Conference, as well as a discussion from both that conference and from a session on conservation exhibits during the American Institute for Conservation's 2012 annual meeting. That's a lot of stuff, and the book is bursting with good ideas and really interesting-looking projects. Far too many, in fact, to review individually, so I'm just going to pick out a few of my favourite papers for discussion now. Emily Williams's foreword notes that 
The conference sought papers and poster submissions that focused on communicating conservation within a museum context, specifically those that focused on educational initiatives linking students to the arts, sciences and social sciences through conservation, projects involving volunteers and the public in museum-led conservation efforts, and strategies for engaging local communities in the preservation of cultural heritage. These priorities are reflected in the organisation of the book into five sections. The first section, called simply The Public Face of Conservation, brings together papers that discuss the subject more broadly or that put it into some sort of theoretical context. Mary Brooks's paper, Culture and Anarchy, Considering Conservation, tries to unpick various tensions in conservation, a discrepancy between our self-image and our public image, the poor perception and understanding of conservation within institutions, and a lack of communication between professionals. As she notes, conservation cannot afford to model itself as a self-evidently valuable activity that needs no justification. We need to demonstrate our role in preserving culturally significant artefacts and bringing the knowledge obtained through that process into the public domain. Brooks concludes that conservation needs active advocacy and engagement if conservators are not to remain underpaid, invisible and unappreciated. Also in this section of the book are papers looking back on decades of conservation outreach programmes at Winterthur in Delaware and at the Liverpool Conservation Centre in the UK. If nothing else, these show just how long conservators have been engaging with the public, somewhat frustrating given our reputation for hiding behind closed lab doors. I was particularly interested in the last paper in this section, which described a large-scale literature search for publications about conservation outreach. The author, Maria Grammaticu, produces a typology for conservation outreach, including permanent and temporary conservation exhibitions, conservation in public, and community involvement through Indigenous communities, volunteers and education initiatives. As Grammaticu notes, there's a lack of quantifiable data in the evaluation of outreach initiatives, so it's difficult to determine what the benefits and drawbacks of different types of engagement are. Still, I found this project interesting, and I'd love to see her results in more detail. The second section of the book, Technical Art History, Technology and Outreach, focuses on the presentation of scientific and technical information. The first paper, by Lisa Young and Mark Avino, describes how the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum used X-radiographs of their spacesuit collection to promote preservation. There are some amazing images in this paper, including X-radiographs of an Apollo 14 spacesuit and a lunar boot. But they're not just cool pictures, they also show the complex construction of a spacesuit, as well as its fragility and hidden deterioration. Recognising this, the NASM conservators used these X-radiographs as the basis for an innovative travelling exhibition about the evolution of the spacesuit, an exhibition which doesn't actually include a real spacesuit. Instead, the X-radiographs and other photographs provide a way to talk about the preservation of fragile modern materials, a conversation that was continued on the exhibition's Facebook page. As the authors note, while this page was intended for making announcements about the travelling show and updating the public and its fans about exhibit-related information, the page has turned into much more. 
it has evolved into a forum where anyone can ask questions about the conservation of spacesuits. It provides an opportunity for the public to converse with experts in the field and to distribute more photographs, articles, diagrams and conservation information to a much wider audience. I thought that this exhibition showed a really imaginative solution to a common conservation problem. What to do when your objects are really popular but they're just too fragile to tour? However, success sometimes comes at a price. As the authors note, Ironically, despite the success of these outreach efforts, the attention generated by the exhibit has seen a spike in the number of requests to borrow spacesuits from NASM. There were two other papers that stood out for me in this section. Naomi Luxford and David Thicket describe how they used an exhibition with interactive elements to both disseminate research results and also encourage public involvement in that research. And a team from Brooklyn Museum described the many ways that they have used web-based content and social media to engage new audiences with their mummy collection. Both of these projects are imaginative and exciting, and I hope we see more of this kind of engagement in conservation. There is a caveat, however. As Eric Nordgren points out in his paper, conservators need to find a balance between outreach and the often pressing needs of a collection. Nordgren says, While outreach activities are planned and carried out as efficiently as possible, it is inevitable that undertaking them on a regular basis represents a real and significant reduction in the number of hours in the day that conservators have to carry out their core responsibility of conserving artefacts. Section 3 is entitled Conservation Outreach and Educational Programming and describes outreach efforts with an overtly educational purpose. Many of these projects were aimed at school children and students, and it is interesting to see the various ways in which conservation has been sexed up for a youthful audience. Bill Wagner and Abigail Schumann's paper, Treasure Keepers, a CSI approach to conservation for students, does just what it says on the tin, and describes how Colonial Williamsburg produced a series of educational broadcasts about conservation for 9- to 14-year-olds. They say... We decided on faster pacing, sound and visuals. We interjected short blasts of information with fast-flying images and fast-paced music with some science-y sound effects to help the viewer cue to the visual background. We used an out-of-the-box plug-and-play graphics package to replace the green screen in some of the interviews with a bluish swirly background with gears conveying an aura of industry and science. We developed short introductory vignettes to open and close each video section. The vignettes paralleled the investigative work of the conservators with a crime scene investigation, piggybacking on the popularity of forensic-based crime shows like CSI and Bones. Agents Smith and Jones investigating a crime scene seek clues to identify which agents of destruction were responsible, resulting in a police lineup featuring the personified usual suspects. It sounds a bit cheesy, but it's certainly a new approach. What was interesting to me about the papers in this section is how little they said in general about the aims of these programmes. Some authors mentioned that conservation outreach can link in with school curricula in chemistry, arts or humanities, and others suggested that it was a fun way to tick a museum's educational boxes. 
One paper mentioned that it would encourage the next generation to appreciate the value of cultural heritage preservation, and another mentioned that they'd got some extra pairs of junior hands to help with a condition survey. However, there was surprisingly little overall about what was in it for the profession or for the conservators themselves, apart from a chance to star in a CSI-style investigation, of course. I'd like to have had a little more hard-nosed analysis about the benefits of including conservation in educational programming, what conservation can take as well as give. The fourth section, Exhibiting Conservation, contains case studies about some of the many conservation exhibitions that have been mounted in recent years. These contained the usual mixture of permanent and temporary conservation displays, text panels, websites, videos and so on. Open conservation labs, where conservators work in public spaces, are also becoming increasingly popular. Irene Peters's talk about her experience of the Visible Conservation Lab at the Musical Instrument Museum was interesting. The museum only opened in 2010, and the lab was designed right from the start with a viewing window. As a result, it had to be designed to be aesthetically pleasing as well as just functional. Peters's paper discusses some of the issues involved in setting up a visible lab, including the problem of the empty lab during lunchtimes or when conservators are working elsewhere, privacy issues for staff working on computers, and the need to beautify the space. Similar ground is covered by papers from the Walters Art Museum and the People's History Museum about their own viewing windows. The last section of papers is about conservation outreach and community involvement. The projects here are varied and include a scheme in Jamaica to train local residents in architectural preservation, community archaeological conservation projects in London, the development of conservation materials for a Native American tribal museum, and other projects training volunteers and community stakeholders to preserve their own heritage. After the papers, there is also a section of discussions from the AIC and Williamsburg conferences. I found this both useful and interesting, and I wish that more conference proceedings included the discussion sessions, although I do appreciate the efforts involved in recording and transcribing them. The book itself is very high quality, nicely bound and printed in full colour throughout. The A4 format means that images can be re reproduced at a reasonable size, this was really useful, as many of the images contained fine detail from exhibitions or outreach materials that would have been lost otherwise. In short, this is an excellent publication. It is understandably a little short on more reflective or theoretical content, but as a guide to the many imaginative and innovative ways that conservators have engaged the public with their work, it can't be beaten. The Public Face of Conservation is edited by Emily Williams, and was published by Archetype Publications in 2013. It retails for £55 and can be ordered through the Archetype website www.archetype.co.uk As usual, if you have any questions, corrections, anything like that, we would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for all the comments that we've had on the Emerging Professionals episode. Uh, it's been thrilling hearing from all of you from all over the world, sharing your stories and uh, suggesting 
resources that we've now tweeted about and uh, just generally uh, kind of showing support for uh, each other and yeah really sharing uh, your hardships and your successes it's been quite emotional thank yeah, you very much for sharing it's been amazing us. thanks guys uh, keep them coming we're hoping to do a follow-up episode in next season uh, on it because we just can't address everything in just our little comments corrections and questions section because it's been really overwhelming thanks guys um so yeah uh, we're trying to get back to you individually as we can uh we recently did a review of the app Articheck, and uh, the makers of it have gotten in touch with us and we've had a little conversation um or well, some of the things that i've said they have said are, are available so i have they actually did an amazing bullet point of all the things that i said that they thought were not correct. So I'm going to address some of them um, and have a, a bit of answer to that as well. Um, so firstly, for shareability with other people, um, you can, it seems, share with uh, non-Artichek users. Um, so you can share information by having guests to your account um, and a desktop client um, for laptop computer users, um, but only for viewing de- uh, information reports. They do have to be Apple users, though, um, so you, you still have to have that. There's still that limit limitation there. The web portal allows you to retrieve text and photos. Um, the photos are saved onto your um, Apple device when you take them in your normal gallery, um, and you can export your text there uh, to add the information onto your database. You'd have to do that all separately though so it would be very time consuming so um, basically you need both app and desktop um uh, yeah program in in tandem basically. in tandem on an apple system yeah okay gotcha. um so there's that there's that limitation there but uh, the main interesting point was um the most important thing i think as well is the data ownership question mark um they do have uh, one to eight bit encryption and bank level security on their information. They don't own any of the information stored with them. Um, and they have, um, full transparency of ability to delete and leave after okay. check and et cetera, et cetera, okay, cool. et cetera. Um, all outlined in their terms and conditions, which are vast. And I do not feel guilty about not <laughs> noticing this. I do feel a bit guilty for not noticing small individual bits of information um but this did open up um a a very nice comment from them that said that they genuinely really appreciated the comments that we had Mm -hmm. um because it encourages them to improve their communication online of product features so basically having a sort of really core fundamental piece of information that like that more openly advertised and communicated mm-hmm. rather than needing to delve into a 30 page yeah, uh, no, <laughs> terms and conditions yeah, section uh, arguably if you've got good security and basically there's nothing to worry about that is a selling point that isn't something to be hidden away in like terms and conditions that that, yeah, is, exactly. that is something to yeah. trumpet about and be like yeah we're amazing bank level security people do it so like so so that's that's a really positive thing that's come out of this exchange that you know yeah absolutely yeah yeah their customer service has been very good, actually. I, I will say they are super keen to to communicate how good their product is, um, and generally, I'd just say 
if you think it's interesting, have a go. And if you don't think it will work for you, then you don't think it will work for you. Uh, I still stand by it being on the pricey side. But if you're a freelancer, then you can you can work with that in your in your price structure. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Okay. Uh, that was uh, everything uh, we had to update you on from the Autocheck review. Thanks very much for listening. And again, if you have any questions, any comments, any corrections, let us know. Patreon shout out. Thanks to Amy and Frankie, who are our first patrons. Thanks, guys. If you'd also like to join us on Patreon, please do. We give you uh, exclusive bonus materials and peeks behind the scenes and uh, all sorts of good stuff. You should totally join us, please. (laughs) There's a uh, link in the uh, show notes as usual. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening with The C Word. And you've been listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenny Mathiasen. Check out our website at thecword.show, tweet us at thecwordpodcast, or simply email us at thecwordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by DD Music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. This has been a Wooden Dice production.